God our Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs all praise and glory. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Most gracious God, look with mercy upon your people gathered here, your children, who are gathered here, for whom Jesus Christ was betrayed, given into sinful hands, suffered death upon the cross for us. Strengthen our faith as we look upon Christ on the cross, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 78, O Bless the Lord My Soul. God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let us then show our love in response to him by confessing our sins in penitence and faith, knowing that he is the one who makes us right, and his grace is all that we have to live our life following Christ. Let us pray together. God, our Father, who is rich in mercy and with whom is plenteous forgiveness, Remember not the sins of our youth, nor our transgressions. Blot them out for the sake of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, who became the sacrifice for our sins. For the sake of his crimson blood, let our sins be forgiven, and let them be imputed to us no more. 
In the name of our blessed Savior, we pray. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sins. We thank God and we say together, praise be to God. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, you have been united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and it'll take our whole lives of hearing his word and continuing to follow Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit within us for us to wrap our heads around that. We have been united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. You now live and move and have your being in the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve as Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I appeal to you, therefore, in the words of the Apostle, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Let us say together, Amen. Our hymn is number 257, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Mark the sacrifice appointed. 
Let us pray in intercession for those with needs. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not abandoning us in our sin and leaving us to be ruled by evil and wickedness. We thank you that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem as our mighty king, righteous and true, and he did not veer away from the cross but willingly died for us. We thank you that he has claimed us as his own, that he has overcome sin, that he has freed us from the power of evil. We thank you that even now he reigns over us, embodying your justice and righteousness and love and mercy. As Christ's people, we now bring our needs and concerns to you. We pray for the nations of this world where people are still enslaved to sin where they viciously attack each other, deceive each other, and care not for the needs of others. O Father, we cry out to you because of the war and the atrocities and the wrong done in Ukraine and northern Mexico, in our own cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, and Memphis. May we be employed by you to stop the human trafficking, the hate, the exploitation that is happening in this world. And even if we can't Stop it to at least bear witness against it. Let there be rulers who organize good societies so that the people can be productive and educated, enjoy the good things of life, and most of all, have the freedom to worship you in the name of Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers for the nations of this world. Gracious God, for the blessed communion of saints, the household of faith, the temple of your Holy Spirit, we pray for your church. Help us to find those who once belonged to the church but have left it and are wandering, lost in this world. We pray we would encounter them and be able to urge them to return to the body of Christ. We pray that they would be restored by your grace and visibly united with us. Hear our prayers for those who have left the church. For the missionaries of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we pray you would bless the pastors who are working in, in uh, all the countries of this world in our, in our missions. We do pray for the Eritrean churches that are sometimes able to have pastors uh, openly and other times must hide. And we thank you for the pastors from our denomination who have been able to work with them. But we pray more pastors would be raised up from among the people in Eritrea, and you would continue to minister and proclaim the word of God to them. Here are our prayers for the Folkert family, the Jackson family, the Verdicts, Leah Hopp, Angela Vascule, Tina DeYoung, and the Van Essendel families, all working and serving you in Uganda. Here are our prayers for the missionaries of the church. For the churches in our presbytery, we pray that they would grow and mature in the knowledge and love of Christ. Direct them to find ways to help those in their communities who need help, and that they would be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. We remember Harvest OPC and their difficulties and and the needs they have. Here are our prayers for that church and their ministers, Dale Van Dyke, Wayne Veemstra, Greg Norfleet, Adrian Crum, and the whole congregation. Here are our prayers.
Merciful Father, for our congregation, we pray for this congregation to which we belong. We thank you for having created us and giving us the gifts we need to be your church. Bless us so that we may continue to care for each other's needs and be generous with each other. Heal us, O God. Make us to grow in the love of Christ and to forgive each other. And by your grace, strengthen us to live in this world for you and to know that even as we as we shall die and pass out of this life, we thank you that in Christ we are kept firm in your grace and mercy and eternal life. For those who need your grace in special ways, we pray that you would sanctify the sickness of those, your servants, so that in their weakness you may add strength to their faith, that you would hold on to them in your grace, and that you would add seriousness to their repentance. For all these things grow weak, when we are ill. And may they always dwell with you, both now and life everlasting. Hear our prayers then for the Mesner family, for Jeff and Fawn, for Luca, for Eduardo and Frida and Leah, and our friends, Becky, Bob, Tom, Phil, Karen, Angie, Dominique, Chris, Gladys, and others we name to you in silence. We entrust ourselves to you, everlasting Father, who has blessed us with the new life of the Spirit, and through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
The scriptures tell us that the things of God are spiritually discerned, and so we pray our prayer for illumination um, in the hope that the Spirit of God would uh, illumine the word to us and penetrate our hearts with it and nourish us by it. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and for its power and authority and for its truth. Um, We pray that you would use it this morning to bear fruit in our hearts, um, fruit that <clears throat> manifests in faith, in hope, and in love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn to our Old Testament reading in Ruth. <clears throat> Chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of from the bundles for your for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, 
The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. <clears throat> our Psalter response is printed in the bulletin. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Yet you are holy. In you our fathers trusted. To you they cried and were rescued. But I am a worm and not a man. All who see me mock me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. On you I was cast from my birth. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out of water. <clears throat> and, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like glass. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried out. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Our epistle reading is in Second Corinthians, chapter five, beginning in verse sixteen. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And our gospel reading in Mark chapter 15, beginning in 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, 
he is Elijah. He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, "Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down." And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's much worse than we thought, and it's much better than we thought. This is one of those sermons where you have to go down before you can go up. In our text this morning is the Gospel of Mark, and in that text it centers on what is called the dereliction of Jesus Christ on the cross. Dereliction means abandonment or being forsaken. Now in Mark, we've heard of some terrible things as we have followed Jesus with his disciples. There was sickness, much sickness, debilitating, social eviction, life-ruining sickness. We heard many stories of sickness, like such as, the, the, such as the story of the woman who hemorrhaged blood for 12 years. She was desperate for a cure. She had been to the doctor. She had spent all her money trying to get help and had become destitute. This woman wanted to be made well so badly, she reached out her hand to touch Jesus' cloak in order to be healed by him. We understand this woman. Sickness is rampant in this world. In general, in the United States, we have access to good medical care, and yet it only takes a highly contagious virus to devastate our quality of health. As much as we would like to think that our progress in medical technology can keep us safe from terrible illness and disease, still it breaks out and we are debilitated. Sickness is terrible in this world. In the Gospel of Mark, we heard of demons, demons that dominate, imprison, and destroy people like the man possessed by a demon who lived in the graveyard of the region of the Gerasenes. Mark says this man lived among the tombs with an unclean spirit, and the local people had given up trying to restrain him because he could wrench the chains apart and break the fetters in pieces. The demon-possessed man wandered about the graveyard night and day, shrieking and bruising himself with stones. I heard that the Satan Temple in Boston is hosting the largest Satan gathering in history. Did you hear about this? Satan Con, it is called. It will include discussion panels, entertainment, satanic rituals, a satanic wedding chapel, and a satanic marketplace. Now, thankfully, and I say this sarcastically so you don't misunderstand, but thankfully, it said that they will be requiring masks and proof of COVID vaccine for all participants. The Satan Temple says that it denies belief in a personal devil, claiming its mission is, quote-unquote, to encourage benevolence and empathy among all people, reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense and justice, and be directed by the human conscience to undertake noble pursuits. 
you think about that for a minute and you think, that has nothing to do with the devil. It's sort of a misconnected purpose. They make Satan sound reasonable and really not so bad. But in the Bible, Satan is all about life-destroying and real destroying destruction of life, enslaving people, and evil. Evil is horrendous in this world, in spite of what they might tell you at this conference. Just ask the women and men who are abused in the evil system of human trafficking and slavery. Just ask the people who have suffered under the utopia, I hyphenated all this, utopia promising annihilated ideologies of the powerful all around this world. Think of Hitler and Nazism or the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or Mao in China or ISIS in Iraq or the Ku Klux Klan in the South. Think of any of these kinds of utopia-promising ideologies that turn out to be very annihilating. All around the world, just ask the men and women and children who run from the drug cartels in Mexico. Just ask the escapees who flee from the maniacal leadership of North Korea. Evil is terrible in this world. In the Gospel of Mark, there's death, death cold and merciless. And we heard of the little girl Jairus' daughter. She's not uh, given a name. Death was knocking at her door, and Jairus had heard Jesus could heal people, so he went out to find Jesus. He loved his daughter. He would do anything to save her. He begged Jesus to come to his house and lay his hands on the girl. Jesus said he would go to her, but along the way he had the encounter, that encounter with the woman who was hemorrhaging the blood, and so he was delayed. As soon as he resumed his way to Jairus' house, the news came that the little girl had died. Death is another one of those common human experiences. It has been the perpetual subject of literature, art, and rituals throughout history and in every culture. You don't have to be Italian. You don't even have to like operas to recognize a death scene in an opera. You don't have to be Hindu to understand a solemn procession through a village with a casket in the front. You don't have to live in ancient Palestine to have some idea of what Jairus felt when he was told that his daughter had died. Death is the tragic anti-life in this world. In the Gospel of Mark, there is religious arrogance. The attitude of, I know more than you do. The posture that I am more faithful than you are. The self-presentation that I am more in the right than you are. We heard of the disciples arguing about which one of them was the greatest, and we listened to Jesus run in with the Pharisees, those religious leaders who were upset because Jesus' disciples had not cleansed their hands and not washed their hands according to religious custom. They arrogantly set themselves above Jesus' disciples. Religious arrogance happens all the time in our world, and you don't have to believe in God to have it. That's sort of a misunderstanding or, or a... Uh, uh, a false idea in our society today that emphasizes being secular. You don't have to believe in God to be religious. Being religious is a universal human condition. Christian Smith, he teaches down at Notre Dame, I think sociology, he explains that human religious nature, he explains it as an orientation based on presupposed beliefs. And those presupposed beliefs don't have to be that there's a God who exists. There can be any kind of presupposed belief. And moral positions based on sources higher than personal preference. So this kind of religious or, uh, orientation is um, based on some kind of a, a uh, source that goes beyond just personal opinion. That recognizes problems and wants to solve them. It searches for the answer to life's big questions. It's within a community. 
and it has certain practices that are shaped by those beliefs. Now, obviously, Christians and Muslims and Jews are all, relig- all religions. They, have, they meet these kinds of qualifi- this kind of uh, explanation. But so, does, so do a lot of modern secular projects that try to shape society. They can also be religious, or the people involved in those can be religious, such as climate change action groups. They can move from, from just a, a scientific sort of evaluation of what's happening and proposed technological uh, ways of, of, of uh, improving things to this sort of um, uh, active work that's done with a religious fervor. Or the LGBTQ plus movement or the equity agendas, all of those can have this sort of religious quality to them. Anyone from a particular religious orientation can be arrogant, those who believe in God and those who do not. Religious arrogance sounds like a small problem when you compare it with sickness and death, evil. But it's not. It has led to hostility and violence in this world. And, as I said, there's religious arrogance in the Gospel of Mark. And finally, we've heard of the horribleness of sin in the Gospel of Mark. It's throughout the Gospel. The power that drives people apart, like in that story of Jesus eating at the home of Levi, the tax collector. Jesus called Levi to be his disciple, and he went to his house for a meal. The scribes and the Pharisees were morally indignant. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They would never do that. Here was sin acting with self-righteousness and condemnation of others. And there was also the sin of Herod, who ordered the, the death of John the Baptist, And then Jesus, who in his teaching explained that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, fornication, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all of which are sin. Sin is horrendous in this world. This is us living in this world. This is humanity in this sinful world. Now, sure, there are good things about human life, but it is racked with disease and evil and death and spiritual arrogance and sin. And we are aware of these terrible things, even if we try to minimize how horrible they are. But we may only have an inkling of what is the most horrific of all. And it's what Jesus reveals on the cross. In verse 34 of our lesson from Mark 15, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I was a boy, my family and I attended a prayer group in the church uh, that we, where we were members. And I remember at one of those meetings, the leader asked each of us to tell the group what our fav- favorite Bible verse was. And my turn came around, and I said, my favorite verse is Mark 15, verse 34. El- Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And that's how I said it, which, as I've learned a little bit more about Aramaic, isn't quite right. But anyway, that's how I said it. And I don't know why I said that, other than I was reading through Mark at that time, perhaps. Now, I'm sure I felt proud that I could say it, (laughs) or thought I could say it. But I'm equally sure that I did not have much of an idea about how horrible this was and what it meant. And even today, I don't fully understand what Jesus said on the cross. The horrendousness of Jesus being forsaken on the cross isn't just those words. It's tied to the cry of anguish that came after his words in verse 37. It says Jesus uttered a loud cry. It's probably better to say it was more of like a shriek or an abysmal groan. Jesus was utterly forsaken or abandoned by God. 
Now, when we hear of abandonment, we think of one person abandoning another. We hear the stories in the news, like the parents who abandoned their baby at the airport in Israel because they were required to buy a third ticket for the baby. I guess they thought they could just bring the baby on and and somehow get past paying for the baby, and I don't think they planned on holding the baby the whole time. So what did they do? They left their child in the terminal and boarded the plane. Now, obviously, they must have been found, pulled off the plane, and got in trouble. But when we hear of abandonment, we think of something like that. You've probably experienced some kind of abandonment in your life, and it's painful, and we take it as rejection. It may even crush us. Perhaps it has stuck with you and you've sought counseling and help to accept it. Well, this is not like the abandonment of Jesus on the cross. Because the complete abandonment of God has not happened to us as it did to Jesus. And we can only use analogies in order to think about it. Here are a few analogies I thought of when I was working on this sermon. Being abandoned by God is like all of the water on this planet drying up. Or being forsaken by God is like having no one talk to you in this world, not a single person. Or being abandoned by God is like the sun ceasing to shine upon us. And I admit, these are very weak analogies. They're simply comparisons that give us some idea about the degree of abandonment we're talking about here. Here's another way to think about it. Looking at Jesus on the cross and considering how bad it can get. You know, we've, we've heard those other horrible things that, that are in the Gospel of Mark that we know in life. But here's the, the worst of it. And thinking about how bad it can get is like looking at a large, watery, hide, hideously stinking hole in the ground and wondering how deep it goes. And so we tie a large, heavy bucket to a rope and we throw it in. And the bucket sinks down and we wait And after a minute or two, we think it must be near the bottom, so we pull it up, and inside the bucket, we find putrid-smelling disease. But we wonder, maybe the hole goes deeper than that. So we throw the bucket in again. This time, we wait five minutes, and we think now it it must be near the bottom, so we pull it up and we look inside. And this time, there's not only putrid disease in it, there are howling demons and freezing cold death in it. We think to ourselves, surely this must be the bottom of the hole. But we consider the hole again and decide to throw the bucket in a third time. Let's give it more time to sink to the bottom, we say. So we wait an hour, and then we pull it up. And when it gets to the top, where we can look at it, we see more putrid disease, more grotesque evil, more freezing death, but now there's also nasty, smelly, uh, smelling arrogance and foul sin in it. Finally... We say, we found the bottom of this horrible hole. We look at the hole again and our doubts return. Because you see, we never felt the bucket rest on the bottom. The decision is made to throw the bucket in once more, and this time we all wait. Uh, We'll wait until we feel the rope grow slack, and we can be certain the big heavy bucket is resting on the bottom of the stinky hole. We throw the bucket in, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. The rope keeps playing out. We wait three hours. We wait six hours. We wait an entire day. We take turns watching the rope. Two days pass. A week passes. A month passes. The bucket keeps going down, down, down into that hideous hole. And finally, 
After a year of waiting for the bucket to hit the bottom, we give up. We realize we will never know what is at the bottom of that hole. We will never know how far down it goes. Being abandoned by God is like that. None of us knows fully what God's abandonment is like because in this life we live before the face of God. R.C. Sproul would always talk about Coram Deo, before the face of God. Even in his judgment, we're living before God. But the end result of sin is to be completely cut off from God. God is always 100% opposed to sin and evil in his creation. He never excuses it. He never ignores it. God holds every single human being accountable for their moral action in this world and for their rebellion against him. But God has not poured out his complete wrath upon us or we would be totally forsaken and sinful life in this world would be totally separated from him. Now we might try to use words and theology to explain the severity of God's wrath, but even these do not come close to experiencing the full reality of it. We hear Jesus' words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what is most important for us is that it's Jesus who is on the cross and who uttered those words. The words are haunting enough, but it's Jesus who uttered them. Jesus bore the full reality of being forsaken by God. Now, John Calvin explains what happened to Jesus. He says, on the cross, Jesus was not experiencing the anger of God because how could God be angry towards his beloved son? Rather, on the cross, Jesus bore the weight of God's severity and all the signs of the wrath and vengeance of God. The severity of God's wrath is worse than all the terrible, the other terrible things we know in this world, sickness, evil, death, spiritual anger, arrogance, and sin. It's the worst of the worst because it's total, complete, absolute rejection of sinners. It's worst of, worst of all because in our sin, we are totally separated from God when we face the full abandonment of God. Reformed theology talks about the death of Jesus on the cross as a transaction. Sin makes for a debt that is owed to God. Righteous deeds are necessary to live with God because he's righteous. Sin is unrighteous, and so God does not receive from us what he is owed because our deeds are sinful, unrighteous. So God does not receive the debt he's owed. But within the being of God, a transaction was in place. It was a transaction between the Father and the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. The Son would pay the debt that we owed to God, and the Father would receive it. And this was set into the eternal uh, purpose of God. The Son would come and take our place, the righteous one put in the place of the sinful ones. Jesus' words and his shriek on the cross help us understand more about what was happening on the cross. The transaction has been an acceptable um, and helpful way of thinking about what God did, but the, Jesus' shriek in his words on the cross help us understand it a little bit more. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in our reading, our epistle reading, for our sake he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross, entered into our most full, sinful human condition. He bore our sin in its totality and to its farthest ends. Its moral disobedience, its destruction and moral ruin, ruin its evil and death. 
But more than that, he bore the utter abandonment of God because of sin. There's a question that arises with this, and it's been much talked about in the church. How can God be separated from God? You've probably already thought about that. How can God be separated from God? Because Jesus is God who became man, so how can God forsake God? A divine transaction is one way to answer this, but if we're not careful, it will lack the full identification of Jesus with us. It's easy to leave a transaction as this sort of external thing that happened. That's not what's intended with that theology, but it could be taken that way. And so that we end up with something that's less than Jesus' full identification with us. More needs to be said about what Jesus did on the cross, and we hear it in his cry. We hear it in his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus absorbed the abandonment of God into himself. Because he was truly human, he could ally himself with us. Because he was God, he could absorb God's abandonment into himself. He absorbed the abandonment that comes from sin like a sponge that soaks up water. He absorbed it, and thereby he became the perfect substitute for us who face the abandonment of God except that he takes the full and complete abandonment of God that is the final result of sin. So it's not just the abandonment that we or separation that we've experienced in this life. He takes the full abandonment of God on the cross and absorbs it. It also ends up in God's uh, sin. Sin does not only result in God's judgment and wrath and death and corruption and guilt. It also ends up in God's utter abandonment. God is perfectly holy and good and righteous, and he cannot abide a sinful creation. So in the end, sin will lead to God's complete abandonment. God, in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, puts himself voluntarily and deliberately in the place of the greatest accursedness and godlessness, and he absorbed it in order that, he, that, it, might, that it might be put to death with him. With Jesus Christ, the abandonment of God because of our sin is terminated. In Jesus Christ. By absorbing our sin and all of its consequences, including being forsaken by God, Jesus was the perfect substitute for us. You see, if, if it had been short of any of that, then there would always be something that's left undone in terms of our being made right with God. But Jesus absorbs all of that and the full abandonment of God and becomes the perfect substitute for us. God did this for us. In Jesus Christ, and that's an important uh, little phrase there, for us. Again, listen to our epistle lesson from 2 Corinthians. For our our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For us. Jesus' death on the cross was not just an external transaction between the Father and the Son. He embodied all of the realities of sin in his body, the moral ruin, the corruption, the death, the evil, the abandonment, and they were put to death with him for us. This wasn't just an exercise of God showing how great he is or how he's able to do something we can't do. It was for us. And let's make that a little more pointed. For you. Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross gives us some idea of how marvelous this is. You who have been baptized into Christ and have faith in him will not be abandoned by God. In our text this morning, Mark says the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And I've focused on Jesus' words, and that really is the centerpiece of this text. But there is 
the, uh, the bit about the curtain being torn in two. Because of Jesus Christ, God ripped open the curtain that separated the people from God. And now with faith in Christ, we have access to God, our loving Father. So how do we respond to that? Well, first of all, with thanksgiving. I mean, isn't that what we're just drawn to? We're drawn to be thankful. Our thanksgiving in the church starts right here at the Lord's table with the prayer of thanksgiving, the Eucharistic prayer. And in that prayer, the events of Jesus' work are mentioned. Those, that prayer has a definite structure to it. I've, I've studied it, looked at it, how it's been used and developed in churches and traditions throughout church history. And it has this same sort of basic structure to it that you can find. And those parts in that prayer actually have names to them. Um, you lead into it with the Sursum Corda, but it has the Anaphora and has these different names um, that are in it. And part of it is naming out. Being, it's a prayer of thanksgiving, naming out what Christ has done for us, obviously finally focusing on his death and resurrection. In that prayer, the events of Jesus' work are mentioned. Listen for them when the prayer is made. It's, it's a prayer that we really are I'm offering up on behalf of all of us. But his prayer, his ministry, I mean, sorry, his birth, his ministry, his resurrection, his ascension, and his death. You'll hear those things mentioned in the prayer. Giving thanks for Jesus' death is enriched by knowing that he absorbed the abandonment of God for us. From the Lord's table, we take our thanksgiving out into the world. We Christians recognize this is the first day of the week. So our week begins with this, and it, and it begins with the preaching of the word, hearing that, and the table. And so we, we, have thank, we are thankful, we receive the sacrament, and then we go out into the world. And uh, we rest today, and then we go out to work and to bear witness to Christ. And we take our thanksgiving out into the world. There are plenty of social implications for us Christians that come from Jesus delivering us from the abandonment of God because of sin. And I'm going to let you think about that the rest of this day and maybe past that. But there are lots of social implications as we carry out our thankfulness for Christ dying on the cross and taking the full abandonment of God upon us. It's not just for me it's for us, and so we take it out into the world. Thanksgiving for Jesus' death leads into a life of thanksgiving, a life lived in gratitude, lived for Jesus Christ more than anything else. It leads to a life that tells other people what Jesus has done. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went up, not to joy first, but he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary 
and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we approach the Lord's table is the insert, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. sets out this promise for us. You were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, those things we value, treasure in this life that we think are of 
of most consequence for us. We weren't ransomed with those things. We were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. In Israel, God instituted the spotless, innocent, sacrificial lamb to be the substitute for the people. The priest laid his hands on the lamb, and the sin of the people was transferred to it. It was a way of pointing forward, of course, to Jesus Christ, as we Christians believe. And yet, it wasn't as complete as what happened with Jesus Christ. After that uh, symbolic transfer happened, then this lamb was slain in the place of the people. In the Passover meal, God's people feasted on the lamb that was slain for them. The one that removed their sin is the one who became the source of their new life. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who removes the curse of sin and death upon us by taking it upon himself, or as I said, absorbing it and destroying it. The Apostle says, we know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. And by his resurrection, Christ has made the end of death. Now we come to the table, and by faith, in the bond of the Spirit, we feed upon the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He bears our sin and punishment, and he gives his righteousness and life to those who have faith in him. Listen again to the words that Jesus gave to the institution of this meal that sets it apart. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So as you hear this invitation to come forward and partake of this meal as Christ's disciples, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin, that you're endeavoring with all your heart to obey him by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are seeking to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you'll be eating and drinking. Coming to the Lord's table, we don't bear, uh, we don't harbor grudges or unforgiveness towards each other. If we do, those are things that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to go and be reconciled and settled with that person with whom you are holding that grudge. If we keep our grudges and think that we can treasure them and hold them close to ourselves, then we will incur the displeasure of the Lord because He has not done that with us. Coming, you affirm your love for one another in Jesus Christ. All who have been baptized, who have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ and are communicant members of a Christian church, are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our salvation and new life in Him. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give them thanks and praise. Almighty and merciful God, it is indeed right to give you thanks and praise. It's our duty and salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God. And not just a general thanksgiving, but this specific, special thanksgiving for Jesus Christ our Lord. For as the time of his passion and resurrection drew near, the whole world is called to acknowledge his hidden majesty. The power of his life-giving cross, which reveals the judgment that has come upon the world and the triumph of Christ crucified. 
He is the victim who dies no more. He is the lamb who was once slain and now lives forever. Our advocate in heaven to plead our cause, exalting us there to join with all the hosts of heaven who are forever praising you. Saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we follow his example and obey his command, granted by the power of your Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and the cup may be for us a communion in his body and blood. For we do receive them with that mystery of our faith that has been uttered by the church from its beginning in one form or another. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once and for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom. And with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ your Son, our Lord. Accept through him, our great high priest, this our sacrifice of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, and unite us in the body of your Son through Jesus Christ our Lord. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood, uh, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood. Give it for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us bow our heads and Lord Jesus Christ, you humbled yourself in taking the form of a servant, and in obedience you died on the cross for our salvation. Give us the mind to follow you and to proclaim you as Lord and King, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Our final hymn is number 468, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place.
Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you now and forever. Amen. Please be seated, and good morning to you all, and uh, especially uh, good morning to uh, the former Miss Wilson and the former Miss Wilson. It always uh, does my heart good to see you, and I doubt very much that I speak only for myself on that. Um, probably you can uh, tell from uh, the delectable smells wafting, uh, wafting, wafting, wafting uh, through the uh, sanctuary that, uh, that we will be having our fellowship meal today. And so uh, we ask that you would um, stay for that and enjoy, uh, enjoy each other's company. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, announcements, uh, at least scripted ones this morning, but to remind you of the baby bottle boomerang, uh, not just fun to say, but edifying uh, to participate in. Um, is there a deadline on? All right. So we would like those bottles to be, uh, to be coming back. Um, and if you need someone to actually put the money in the slot, it is Caroline Klaus's favorite activity in the whole world is to uh, find random coins around the house and put them in. So if you need assistance with that part, let her know. Um, finally, I would uh, just, I guess, a little bit off script, but ask you to, uh, to continue in prayer for the, uh, the officers of the congregation. Um, and uh, in particular, like we have new deacons and uh, ask you to, to not, not just uphold them in prayer, but also um, to be, uh, I guess, to um, give, give us all, and, and through the deacons, give us all opportunities to, to serve in that way, um, that there are, uh, you know, the, if there are needs that you have, I, I know sometimes it can be sort of like, a, well, I don't want to be a burden, um, but uh, in a way it's actually more burdensome for, for deacons to have nothing to do. So please let us bear your burdens in that way, or if you know of needs within the congregation, um, obviously you know, some of you know more about, uh, uh, about your neighbors in, uh, in the congregation. Um, you know, if there are needs, uh, let the deacons know, and, uh, and let, us, uh, let us all as a family bless each other in that way. Um, that's all I have to say. Yes, please, Mr. Yes. So yes, the uh, the congregations about the f- the uh, future trajectory of uh, of Providence OPC. Those conversations are still ongoing um, on a personal and uh, sessional level. So uh, fear not. We haven't just sort of forgotten about that. Um, anyone else with? Mind you, I should have done it at the table, but just to remind you, the bread, I didn't see anybody, I think everybody's heard this, but last week we announced that we are using a good quality gluten-free bread from now on, just the one kind of bread, so everybody can partake of it. Um, and it brings us back to the idea of one loaf. Um, 
if you want to get that oneness in your head, um, go to 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, the one bread, the one uh, cup. And so we're trying to maintain that. And to have the two kinds of bread has always been a little uneasy you know, for us in the session. So anyway, this is a way of bringing it together to the one bread. And we can all eat good quality gluten-free, right? <laughs> Anyone else? All right, one of the shorter announcements periods on record for this congregation. Enjoy some fellowship and then enjoy some food.